So, um, Daniel, thank you very much for talking with me. Um, in December, I always like to do my radio show about the religious holidays, Christianity, Christmas, Judaism, Hanukkah, and um, so I appreciate your giving us some background. You, you're, you're Canadian, your, your background is Jewish, you're an expert in Buddhism. Right. Um, how did you get from Canada to Northern California to be a religious studies professor? Well, when I started my university career, I actually started in physics as an undergraduate. I was at McGill University in Montreal, which is a wonderful city, by the way. And um, after a year, I just felt like there were more, there's a lot of numbers that are dealt with in physics and a lot of calculations. And I thought that maybe it's partially the fault of the way it was taught, but there were just so many formulas that we had to memorize. And I didn't feel that people were explaining to us the meaning behind the formulas. And I wanted to learn more about how the universe operates, not just how to calculate things. And then I took some uh, elective courses in world religions, and I really enjoyed it a great deal. And uh, I ended up switching to religious studies. And that's basically how I got into that. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so that's how I, so I ended up majoring in religious studies for my undergrad. But then I went to, uh, I did a master's in Eastern religions at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa. And then I went to University of Chicago where I did my PhD in South Asian studies. So South Asia, just to be clear, is basically India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that area. So I studied that and then I, and I got my job here in Chico and I've been here ever since. You know, there's kind of a stereotype that Canadians are really nice. Do you find that they are nicer than people that you know in the, in the States? <laughs> It depends what you mean by nice. I've talked about this a lot with people, actually, and I think that they are more polite, but they are not necessarily friendlier. In fact, Americans are probably friendlier in the sense that they're more willing to invite you over and kind of slap you on the back and say, how are you doing? But Canadians are a little more polite, maybe we'll say. Um, so that, but Canadians are a little bit more reserved, I think, than Americans, which comes from a closer connection, of course, to Britain. Uh, Britain, which is a more reserved society as well. So I think that that definitely uh, has to do with it. Got it. And then what drove you to Buddhism? Just being an expert. So, as you said, I grew up in a Jewish uh, family and my grandfather was a rabbi. I went to a Jewish private school growing up. So I learned a lot about Judaism. Then, as I said, I was interested in physics and I kind of fell out of it and got more interested in religious studies. So once I had to focus on religion, I figured I'd already gone to a Jewish school for all of my elementary years. So I wanted to do something different. We live in a Christian society. Um, so just by living in North America, one learns a lot about Christianity just by seeing what goes on around you. So I wanted to learn something totally different. And so that's how I got interested in Eastern religions. So Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, and I just happened to take a course that was really, really good where they got us excited about the ideas in those religions, and that kind of is what helped me focus on it. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm interested in talking about <clears throat> is how much of the Bible has been changed over the centuries, like biblical scholar Bart 
Ehrman, who used to be an evangelical Christian, he writes about how the Bible has changed over the centuries. Scribes change things according to mistakes or their whim or whatever. So what, what do we know about the historical Jesus, let's say? Yeah, so this is a very important point. In fact, coming from a science background, as I said, many people feel that many people like to use science to kind of counter a lot of the claims of various religions, Christianity, Judaism, and other ones, and say, well, look, it says in your Bible or your sacred text that this happened, but science tells us that that happened. And therefore, I don't know if I'm going to believe in your religious text. Like but, the earth was created in six days, which yes, exactly. we know but it was. Yes, exactly. We know it's at least eight or nine days is what science is telling us. <laughs> So, well, um, the Big Bang exactly. was instantaneous. <laughs> exactly right. Well, actually, interestingly enough, many people don't realize this, but when the scientific idea of the Big Bang was developed, it was actually scientists who were most concerned about it, and many religious leaders welcomed the idea, because actually they felt that the idea of the Big Bang, like a huge flash of light you know, from one moment to the next out of which the world emerged, they felt that that actually cohered better with the Bible, and many scientists were concerned that what they were discovering was so similar to the kind of thing described in the Bible that that was uh, making them feel a little bit ill at ease. So, you know, not all science is, well, certainly not all science is used to, um, to problematize the various religious claims. Often science helps them. And, of course, many religious people have been scientists, and many scientists have been religious. So getting back to that, uh, the point I wanted to make was that while many people think science is the best tool to really uh, highlight problems in religion, actually the religious texts themselves have a lot of internal inconsistencies. So when we're talking about using religious texts like the Bible as a historical document and trying to look at what it tells us about any figure, be it Moses, Jesus, or um, Adam, it's very difficult to tease out what might be the, the truth from those claims and what might be myths that have arisen over time. And there's two basic problems, right? Two basic problems. One of them is that within the text itself, there are internal inconsistencies. And of course, in the New Testament, this is most obvious by the fact that we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, the Gospel Luke, and John. according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, right? So it says right there that these are the same story according to different people. If they were all going to say the same thing, then there wouldn't need to be four books, right? There would just be one. So the thing is that within the text, there are inconsistencies within them. In fact, biblical scholars have detected something like 120 inconsistencies amongst the four Gospels, for example, where they're talking about the same um, string of events, but yet mention different things, a different order of things. Some people are present in one story and they're not present in the other story at a certain event. Um, there's some debate about who uh, Joseph's father was, right? So Joseph, the father of Mary, mother of Jesus. In, in Matthew, I believe, it says his father's name was Jacob. In Luke, it says his father's name was Heli. So there's all sorts of inconsistencies within the text. Um, and then the other problem is that there are different texts, different versions of the text, right? So even within the accepted version, 
that the various uh, that the church committees have decided this is the official version. Even within that, there are inconsistencies. But we also forget that there are many other versions of the Bible that were Apocryphals, out there. Gospel there are hundreds Mary, of different manuscripts. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. Well, yeah. So let's be clear. Yeah. There's even yeah. So there's yet another problem. So I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just talking about Matthew. Like, let's say the Gospel of Matthew. There are many different ancient manuscripts of Matthew, and they are slightly different, right? That's what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, there's yet another problem that there are also Gospels that never made it into the official collection, but were written and again tell a similar but slightly different story. So, there's just many, many, many problems with thinking of the Bible that you might see in a, on a bookshelf in a modern house today taking that as somehow um, be, as somehow a document that you can use to learn about history is just very, very problematic on a number of levels, right? And forgetting all the mythology in it that obviously is going to be scientifically problematic. I mean, just forget about all that stuff for a minute. Just the very fact that that Bible that you pick up uh, on your bookshelf and read consists of a text that was chosen from a few different manuscripts with different versions and was chosen from a few different books, as you say, that weren't even put into the Bible but are still out there and say different things and were written back then at the same time. So why should we believe the versions in the Bible and not these other ancient texts that were written at similar times, uh, exactly as you say? So these create a lot of problems, not to mention that there are inconsistencies in the Bible itself. So you you might say, ah, I see, so so-and-so did such and such, but then the Gospel of Luke says so-and-so did something else. So which one of those ones do you believe? So to try to construct history out of it becomes very, very difficult, with one more compounding factor, and that is that there is very, very little, very little, outside the Bible that can corroborate the claims in the various biblical texts, right? So the Romans did not make records of a man called Jesus or Yeshu, I guess would have been his Hebrew name, being uh, crucified at that time. So it's not like we can go to the Roman archives and find mentions of this ha happening. It's only mentioned in the Gospels. And a few people wrote about it a couple of decades later. Uh, Josephus Flavius mentions it very briefly, I think in about the year 90, so that would have been, you know, 60 years later. Um, so it's just very difficult to know what is and is not true in these texts. Is there a particular orientation, um, methodology, slant, propaganda point of view that that dictated which ones were chosen? I mean, is, is it making a point, we pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John rather than Thomas, Mary, whatever, because it points to this belief? There's no question that the texts that were chosen to be included were chosen because they had certain messages that the council of church leaders <clears throat> wanted to be put across. So, you know, there's a gospel of uh, Thomas, that I think was found relatively recently. And it says some things that are slightly different. Uh, it focuses on some more, I guess you could call it, um, esoteric 
elements of the identity of Jesus. So, of course, as, as I'm sure the viewers know, or the listeners know, the exact nature of Jesus was a big subject of debate in the early church, whether he was a prophet, whether he was God himself, whether he was part God and part man, right? All of these were discussed and debated, and different gospels emphasize different aspects. Uh, the, the Gospel of John, for example, emphasizes his divinity somewhat more than the other gospels do. Um, so there's all sorts of, and some of the gospels uh, emphasize more his humanity, and they were probably aimed at slightly different communities. So the one that emphasized his humanity and the idea that he's a wise prophet, but not necessarily talking so much about the idea of him being God, would have been aimed more towards the Jewish people, right, who in their religion, unlike the Greeks, right, in their religion, they don't have an idea already that God can come down to earth in human form. So the Gospels that are aimed towards the Jews would be more focusing on his um, continuation with the Jewish tradition. The ones written in Rome for the Greek and, and Roman peoples would, would feel more comfortable emphasizing his divine uh, aspects. Um, and so they would be chosen for various reasons like that. Yeah, what interests me is it seems like the crucifixion is really a central event for Christians because it meant he was divine, I, you know, that he arose from the dead. But there's an ancient pagan tradition that you kill the king in order, you sacrifice the ruler and in the, around the time of, that Jesus was, that we celebrate Christmas in order to ensure uh, a fertile spring. Yes. So is there any, I mean, was this a pagan overlay that fit the mentality of the time, the, the, the risen king, or is there any evidence that in fact, the tomb, you know, the stone was rolled away from the tomb and his women followers found him. Right, well, certainly there's no evidence for that ever having happened. Again, there's no evidence 100% for Jesus having existed at all, right, other than the Gospels themselves. So all we know about the stone that was moved comes from the Gospels themselves. So there's no external corroborating evidence or anything like that. But um, I think your point about pre-existing traditions in the region of kings being sacrificed in order to ensure a great harvest is certainly an element that went into it. And I think that like all religions, Christianity, in, uh, Christianity includes ideas from a bunch of different belief systems that were going on at the time. So we had the Jewish belief in a Messiah that had existed before that. And in the book of Isaiah, we have early intimations of this, um, the idea that there will one day be a Messiah that will bring peace to the world. So, of course, elements of that went into Christianity, but they also were living in a Greco-Roman world in which they had demigods um, like Hercules and whatnot, gods that were the product of a human being and a divine figure, and they are therefore demigods in some way. So those ideas were floating around at the time, and obviously the, some of those might have been, been incorporated into the idea of Jesus being part God and part man, not to mention that there are other traditions, well, uh, sacrifice in general 
is an extremely common tradition throughout the world. You have it in China, in India, uh, in, of course, Europe, all of these places. The idea of sacrifice, that human beings owe something to uh, God and that we want to make a sacrifice of some valuable item that goes up as an offering to God and shows our faith in God, and then hopefully we will get some sort of benefit from God in return, right? So that's a very basic feature of many, many religions all over the world. So in the case of Christianity, the crucifixion of Jesus is simply a kind of sacrifice that is known in religions all over the world. We have some valuable item, in this case Jesus, who is offered up to God, and through that, some good thing happens to people. Now, the details of what that good thing is can vary widely amongst the religions. In the case of Christianity, of course, it's that our souls will be saved. But um, the basic idea of offering something is certainly, I don't know which specific pagan group it might have come from, but it certainly is there. And of course, within Judaism as well. Um, Judaism focused heavily on sacrifice. So there's no doubt that that emerges out of a Jewish tradition as well. Didn't Abraham have to sacrifice? Oh, he, he right. had to sacrifice his son, and then at the end, God said, "No, you don't really have to do it." Yes, exactly right. So that was a early example of sacrifice in in Judaism, and of course, one of the most pertinent ones was the uh, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So where Jews would yes, it, where the lamb would be sacrificed by the high priest and and note that it was sacrificed specifically as an atonement for the sins of the people. So in other words, that lamb has to die in order so that the people's sins can be forgiven. And this was a well-known um, idea within Judaism. So the idea of Jesus simply being that lamb who dies for our sins is very continuous with, or contiguous with Judaic ideas, really. Every Christmas I say to the, the kids who are gathered, I want you to know that we're celebrating the birth of Jesus who is a radical. He violated Old Testament taboos. He right. bore witness to women. He traveled with women. He said, Mary hath chosen the better part talking with me than Martha in the kitchen. And that's why he was killed is because he violated all kinds of Old Testament and I guess Roman laws. Is, is that an accurate thing I'm telling those kids? It's certainly accurate that he violated a lot of the laws. The, uh, the Old Testament has a lot of laws that Jews are enjoined to follow. There's traditionally 613 of these laws. And often, and in fact, this is not completely unique. Many of the great prophets, I mentioned Isaiah already as one of the early prophets that spoke about the idea of a Messiah. But Isaiah is also very famous for talking about the idea that God, of course, lays down a lot of rules for us to follow. But he cares a lot more about the purity of our hearts and the goodness of our intent than following a lot of these rules to the letter. And in fact, having spoken about the Day of Atonement, one of the things that Isaiah says is, is that, yes, God commands that we fast on the Day of Atonement, that we're not allowed to eat. But if you follow the letter of the law by not fasting, but yet treat women badly, treat children badly, treat strangers badly, then God will be more angry 
than if you were to break the fasting rule but still be nice to the people around you. So the the teachings of Jesus are very much within that prophetic tradition that's already there in Judaism, but he took it a step further and explicitly did talk in a number of places about the, uh, the idea that we don't have to follow the laws that much anymore. Um, and then, oh yes, so of course that angered people. However, that's not really why he would have been killed, because traditionally the Jewish, um, the Jewish council in Palestine in those days didn't kill people for breaking the laws. In fact, although it is true that in the uh, Jewish parts of the Bible, right, the Old Testament in Hebrew, there are some punishments for breaking certain rules that do require death, there's almost no evidence that those were ever really carried out. So the Jewish tradition was not one in which there were heavy punishments for breaking rules. It was assumed that God is the one who punishes you, right? So if you break these rules, then if God sees fit, he will punish you. And it's not really up to, I mean, I, like I think that there's, you can count on one hand the amount of times that the Sanhedrin, which is the name of the Jewish council that ruled the area, probably on one hand the amount of times they actually handed out a death penalty to somebody for breaking law. So that's not why... Jesus would have been, uh, I mean, he, obviously the Jews didn't kill him, the Romans did, but um, but according to the story, you know, they he was handed over and whatnot. So the reason that that would have happened would be just because he was presumably causing um, a lot of problems with, with the Romans, right? So it's not the breaking of the Jewish laws that was really the problem, although of course it angered people, but the real reason was that he was shaking things up with Rome. And the Romans didn't like that because he was saying that he was, you know, the king of the Jews, but of course the, the Roman emperor was supposed to be the ultimate ruler of the areas. So there was distress about that. And uh, from the Jewish standpoint, while yes, they would have been upset that he was not following the rules in the way they wanted it, I mean the religious rules, they were a lot more upset by the idea that he was angering the Romans and at any time the Romans could come and try to punish him and by extension all of the Jewish people for this trouble. And of course, shortly thereafter they did. And the temple was indeed destroyed by Rome and the Jews were exiled from the area, not because of what Jesus was doing, but because of, you know, there were other uh, uprisings and stuff. Uh, there was a Bar Kokhva rebellion where they spoke out against the Romans and there was a lot of uh, difficulties because of that. So, I mean, it, those fears were not ill-placed. Mm. If if I understand this correctly, Catholics say that you can um, get rid of your sins by confessing to a priest and doing a penance like this many Hail Marys. But Protestants, according to Luther, Martin Luther said that you, it, it's only by grace. You can't do works. It's only by your faith and you just hope that you're going to be the one who is given the grace to be saved and not have eternal damnation. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a pretty big difference between those different groups as far as I understand it. Yes, certainly the Protestants focus more on the idea of grace. And again, interestingly enough, this is not just a feature that is found in Christianity, but there are many religions around the world that have this kind of discussion about the idea of, well, how much can we as mere humans do to help ourselves achieve a higher state, get to heaven, or whatever it may be, versus how much do we have to rely upon 
God or the gods or whatever they happen to believe in, but how much do we rely upon them to bring us to a state of salvation? This happens in Buddhism as well, for example, and many other religions. But yeah, that's certainly a central question. Right, because in Mahayana Buddha, they would say the bodhisattvas can give you grace in a way and help you. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So in Mahayana, there's often more of a focus on the power of other divine beings to help us. In Theravada Buddhism, there's often more of a focus on yourself through diligent meditation can achieve a state of nirvana. Exactly right. So there's similar debates that go on in, in, in a number of different religions. In Hinduism, uh, this is also a debate in various forms of, uh, of Vaishnavism. In fact, in Hinduism, they've got a really interesting um, metaphor that they use. They call it the way of the monkey and the way of the cat. So the way of the monkey is when people believe that their deeds can help them get to heaven. The way of the monkey, sorry, the way of the cat is when they believe that it's really God who brings you there. Why? Because a baby monkey actively clings to the mother as she goes around in the jungle, whereas a cat is picked up by the neck of the mother and just kind of flailing, doesn't really do anything. So our relationship to God is kind of like the monkey where we actively hold on, and if we let go, we'll fall. Or the cat, where it's just purely God, right? He just picks us up and we don't have anything. I just think it's a really interesting image, so I wanted to mention it. I love it. I love it. So Christianity was a small kind of cult, you could say. Why did it become the largest religion in the world? Why isn't it Judaism or Taoism or Zoroastrianism? Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a very, that's, that's a, obviously one of the most difficult questions that religious scholars have. So I won't be able to answer in a few minutes here. But certainly there's a few key elements. One is that we, we forget that in the ancient world, before monotheism, there were many different gods, and different regions had their own local gods. Um, so, you know, Athena might have been worshipped in Athens and not in other places, and other places had their own local god. So what that does is, what, in trying to, to organize an empire like the Roman Empire, it's a little more difficult to do that when everybody has their own local gods and they each think that their own local gods are in charge of their kind of particular area and their power gets weaker as you get farther from the area. Introducing the idea of one god who rules over everybody is definitely a, a strategy that can make the imperial ruler more powerful because people, instead of associating him with a Roman god, but yet that Roman god isn't really god of the whole world anyway, if you associate the ruler with the great god, the one god who rules everybody, that sort of gives the ruler even more power than associating him with the existing gods that are only local gods and not really ruling over everywhere. So for sure, everywhere that monotheistic religions have emerged, they have often gone on hand in hand with the imperial leadership and been locked together so that they kind of justify each other and the mythology of the religion ends up giving more power and legitimacy to one great ruler who rules over everybody in a way that's kind of analogous to the way that one god rules over, over everybody. So we see a similar thing in Islam, where Islam also spread very rapidly, and a large part of it was because monotheism just works uh, in the... It works as a... 
legitimizing scheme in people's minds to make the emperor or the ruler that much more powerful. So once the Roman emperors heard about Christianity, and of course, as you know, they first uh, oppressed it, but Constantine had a dream, or maybe he did or maybe he didn't, but the myth is that he had a dream in which... Uh, I believe a, a cross was floating above him, and then he went to battle and won, so he became Christian. But whatever reason, the fact is that one emperor decided to adopt Christianity as the official religion. And once he did so, it did help to consolidate things just in the way I've talked about. It's just easier to rule a place where there's one god than when there's all sorts of many different local gods. So just by virtue of the fact that he happened to be the emperor of the most powerful empire in the world at that time, that's one quick way that Christianity suddenly became a very important world religion. And then, uh, as it expanded even more over time, that's a bit of a more complicated question that has to do with colonialism, of course, where Christianity was the religion of the main colonizers of the world. So they spread across the world. And they didn't spread by sword, just like Islam. Um, many people think that religions spread usually by the sword, you know, where they say, believe in our religion or die. Of course that happens sometimes. But by and large, it was actually through just hard missionary work and teaching people about the ideas of your religion. And many people say, well, you know what, maybe it'll in some way benefit us if we adapt this religion. Either um, that religion will help us become closer to you guys who are now our rulers. So it's not like they threatened to kill them if they didn't convert. It did happen, of course, but that's not the main way. The main way is people just saw that if they adopted the religion of their ruler, they knew that the rulers would look more favorably upon them. And they also hoped that maybe whatever God allowed these people to conquer the world will also help us to live a flourishing life. So that's another reason that I think Christianity uh, did very well. And then, of course, the final reason is that it appeals to some very, very uh, deep psychological needs in humanity, right? A need to know that there's a loving God who loved us so much that he actually came into the world as a human being to experience what life is like. It's a message that many people would like to hear rather than a cold God who doesn't care about us, right? So uh, that's another reason that many people were very quick to adapt it. You know, it's interesting that evangelicals and Latter-day Saint are spreading around the world, I think very rapidly, along with Islam, because they do that kind of missionary work, knock on everybody's door, the, the evangelicals. So that looks like it's a technique that works. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I mean, the main course, I'm not an expert in Christianity. I, mean, I teach world religions courses, and my main field of expertise is more Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. And an interesting point is that, as, as people know, Buddhism and Hinduism, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, all of that stuff is just exploding uh, like uh, in popularity in the West. And the first people to bring the teachings of these religions to the West were actually Christian missionaries who translated the works of the Buddhist works and the Hindu works from Sanskrit and Chinese into English and French and German, the main European languages in the, let's say, 17th and 18th centuries. Why? So that they could learn more about those religions in order to spread Christianity better, right? So if you go to spread Christianity and you say, your religion's wrong, you should become Christian. And they say, oh yes, why is our religion wrong? And the missionary says, well, actually, I don't know anything about your religion, but whatever it is, I'm sure it's wrong. <laughs> That's not gonna be a very effective way of converting people. 
diligent study of Hinduism or Buddhism, and then after years of studying it, you go and you say your religion is wrong and this is why, you're going to be much more effective at it. So the missionaries worked very, very hard to convert the people. And in doing so, they also translated the texts so that they could understand them. And those texts often, you know, fell into other people's hands or got put in libraries and universities around the West. And that's how the first people in the West really started learning about those Eastern religions, was through missionaries who, in a kind of backfired, right? Now everybody's doing yoga and meditation. Uh, the missionaries, of course, when they first translated, didn't expect everybody to do that. They thought, oh, you know, the, the people would be upset by what they learned about these religions and support the missionary work even more. But in many cases, they were actually intrigued and said, I want to learn more about it. So do you think that if Constantine had dreamed about a star of David and won the battle, that Judaism as a monotheistic religion could have been the dominant religion? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, scholars have thought about these kinds of ideas as well. And Judaism does have a number of rules. As I said, 613, but really there's more than that because those are just the basic ones and there's many rules on top of those. Um, so it's difficult to universalize Judaism because of that. There's just so many rules that, that Jews are enjoined to keep that it becomes difficult for people who have no experience with following these rules to adopt the religion. So um, Christianity precisely was designed to be spread beyond the Jews, right? So initially, the followers of Jesus were Jewish, but very quickly, non-Jewish followers began to emerge, whereas that never really happened with Judaism. So, uh, and, and of course, part of the reason is the sheer amount of laws that are required to be, as you might know, there's, for example, dietary rules in Judaism uh, that involve not eating certain foods, not eating certain foods Pork. together. And that's just one example of many rules. So it becomes more difficult to adopt Judaism. And, you know, people like to, um, when there's uh, various options and one is, has more complications than another, people often will choose the one with less complications. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's an Israeli soap opera fictional series about modern Orthodox. It's called something yes. like Sagrim. Have you seen it? Oh, Stiesel? No, it, it's about... Oh, this is a different one? Okay. Yeah, there, and it's ex exactly that point, that they they really worry on Sabbath if the milk is in the meat container, and right. that, that you're not supposed to like even shake hands with the opposite sex unless you're married, mm -hmm. and one of the couples has a baby, and he can't hug her because she hasn't had her mitzvah after the, the childbirth. So that it, it conveys that sense of, of, of arduous rules, even for those modern-day Israelis in Jerusalem right. and Tel Aviv. Yes, right. So, I mean, Judaism is what we often call an, an orthoprax religion, meaning that there are very many practices, uh, rituals that one does that are part, a deep part of the religion. Um, and Christianity is often called an orthodox religion, meaning that the ideas underlying it are very fundamental, right? So with Christianity, the main feature is that you accept Jesus as your savior. So in your mind, and your heart, you accept that. And whether you follow the various rules is of less importance. Whereas with Judaism, it's, that's not the case, right? Um, with Judaism, following the rules has always been a very important elements of the religion. So it does make it harder to follow. However, there have been kings 
uh, non-Jewish kings who have converted, like the, the Khazars as an example, in the Caucasus region, there have been non-Jewish kings over time that converted to Judaism, and a number of their um, subjects did convert with them. So it has happened in the past, but not, not uh, terribly commonly. Ah, got it. Um, to, to bring this up to today, the, the evangelical Christian right in the U.S., has put a lot of energy into doing away with abortion, and mm -hmm. but not much energy into taking care of children. So I wondered, is there, do they have any biblical basis for this focus on abortion? Well, that's, I mean, that I do not know if abortion is mentioned at all in the Bible, probably not, even in the Talmud or in any of the ancient religious texts that I'm familiar with. I mean, abortion has been practiced since the beginning of time. But whether it's discussed at all one way or the other, I actually don't know. However, for sure, as you pointed out, a caring for the living is discussed at, in great length in the Bible, and certainly um, caring for people who have difficulties in life um, caring for widows, orphans, uh, not charging interest, as people may know, is a, is a theme that comes up a lot in, in the Bible. So these kinds of things, for sure, there's no question that both the Jewish and the Christian portions of the Bible focus a lot on caring for others, uh, being kind to people who are in difficult circumstances. Um, and that's definitely a very, very important theme. So whether or not abortion or anything even kind of like abortion is mentioned, I'm not sure offhand, but for sure, way more time is spent talking about the importance of caring for the needy in society. There's no question about that. Right. I think there's something about not wasting your seed, like against masturbation, maybe? That, that there's yes, some that, that is in there, I believe. Yeah. But yes, I believe that that is in there. And certainly there is an idea that, you know, the main uh, reason we have sex is to procreate. I mean, that's certainly, it's not a common uh, theme in the Bible, but it is mentioned now and again in the Bible, and certainly in later literature. But there's uh, also both. the Song of Solomon, Old Testament mm -hmm. stuff about your duty is to, you know, have make love with your wife, and, and there's mm -hmm. all these voluptuous, sensual imagery that are very sensual. So I would say the Old Testament is much more sexually positive than the New Testament, because Jesus said, yeah. be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Old Testament has a much more sex-positive attitude than the New <laughs> Testament. And again, that is connected, presumably, to you know Greek ideas of purity uh, that were not really uh, around so much in, in the early Jewish culture. Yes, certainly that's the case. Great. Again, absorbed from the neighboring neighboring ideas, Platonic ideas, and others. Sure. Good. Um, okay, I think that's that's fabulous. I really appreciate talking with you. Okay, good. I hope I was 